Pucks and Lines. This is podcast number seven. I'm here with the esteemed John Ramsey. Hello, Ronan. And Hello, Ronan Ryan. Top of the morning to you. Does this you know, every time. Okay. Right. But uh, we actually have two esteemed guests here. We have Tim Mahoney from Bids, the CEO of Bids, and we also have Jonathan Clark, the CEO of Luminex. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Whatever possessed you. If Ronan's paying for beer, we're all going to show up. Mm -hmm. So speaking of beer, we have our own IEX beer uh, called Liquidity, or as they say in Denmark, or the Holland, Liquidity. Can't and I can't make fun of Dutch people. I can yeah. make fun of the Irish. Well, did you ever see like, Austin Powers 3, oh. where Michael Caine goes, there's two things in this world I dislike. And he goes, what's the first one? People's intolerance for other people's cultures. Because what's the second one? The Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have Cheers. an AX beer. Don't write it. Open up We're the can to celebrate the close of the market. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> just got in the face. God. That's frothy. Let's take a sip of the IEX liquidity beer. Whoa! Mm -hmm. I can taste the liquidity mm -hmm. right off the bat. The story behind it is we had an event here in October. And we weren't invited to. Which um, neither <laughs> of you guys were invited. So we had a broker event here at our office that we hosted, and we had a brewery provide us with seven beers, and we did a beer tasting. And Were they all IPAs? No, there was um, there was lagers. There was a very fruity one. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they picked the IPA, and sometimes IPAs can have that like aftertaste. Yeah, that's this a bit one too is hot. Yeah, this one's great. Very uh, uh, The hoppies are very hard to get. Like yeah. the lagers are are much technically difficult to brew. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> so right. back to our esteemed <laughs> guests. What I wanted to ask them some questions is obviously they're both CEOs of different trading venues now, and you both started off on the buy side. And an interesting fact when. I was reaching out to them both to do this podcast. I wasn't aware that you guys had worked together back in the day. Yeah. So I'd love to hear some stories about like how you started out, how you ended where you are, and then I think what would be good, because there's a lot of people in the industry, outside the industry, God bless them why they listen to this, they probably would not know what Bids, Luminex is, and maybe just tell us a little bit about both of those. and. We'll go from there, and now I asked you such a long question. Yeah, I'm I'm Unfortunately, <laughs> we're now out of time. <laughs> it's a risk when you go first. I'm, I'm going to defer to you first so I can play off you. Okay, so, yes. so I'll start out by, uh, for, so from September of 2001 to September of 2006, John and I sat in the same trading room, two desks apart, probably 15 feet apart, facing each other. And what was really interesting is that we both, like this was in Princeton, New Jersey, yep. at Millennium. Uh, most people live locally. And we lived in Central Jersey. In fact, we lived two towns away from each other. So we would get there early. So at 6.30 in the morning, John and I are there, and we're like the only two, and our boss. Did you talk to each other back then? We did all the time. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It was just funny, because we were always there at the same time. And so it's a, it's a much smaller world than you could ever imagine that we had spent all that time together. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah, so I was I was in the this, uh, this was sort of a post 9-11 event where our the building that I was working out of, which is right across the street here uh, in the financial center, had suffered some damage and they said, look, we need you to report down to Princeton because we were part of the asset management business. So my group originally was sort of born out of Bankers Trust. It was a quantitative uh, um, team that was managing institutional money. And so it looked very different than sort of more of the retail-centric yeah. business that, that Tim was supporting, but lo and behold, here we were sort of sitting in the same room. And so I was managing, you know, some money and trading my own book, and Tim was managing all of trading for all of, of my lamb. So it, it was kind of fun to swap, funny, yeah. swap some stories yeah. back in the day. And, and how, long, uh, how long was it before you each were in charge of your own? Actually, my story starts in 1979. So 
Well, he started drinking. No, so we, 74. Mm. Yeah, so we would have started drinking at the same time. But so, like in uh, 1979, <laughs> I was between. I was a uh, graduate high school going to college, and uh, I needed a job. And so for for me, I was thinking, okay, you know, I grew up in Jersey City. I could see it from here, and uh, I was certainly convinced that what I was going to do is I was going to go work down the shore and be a bartender somewhere. Mm. My dad's like, no, I'm going to get you a real job. Wasn't sure what that meant. He goes, I'm not sure I'm going to send you to the curb or to the big board, but I'm going to do something. So the curb didn't sound good to me. Like, it sounded like a really bad outcome. <laughs> yeah, you know? like a really bad. Yeah. yeah. So he came in, he goes, like, I think I'm going to send you work on the American Stock Exchange. I think it'll be really good for you. It'll be interesting. They just started this new thing, options. So options only started in the American Stock Exchange in 1975. Hmm. And so I went down, I worked summers and Christmas breaks on the American Stock Exchange and started working at Merrill Lynch. And it's important because that was my start date at Merrill Lynch. And so when I graduated, I went to work in the unit trust business, which is just a different 40-act vehicle. Mm -hmm. But in 2000, we merged my unit, which was in the private client, we merged it with the asset management group and ended up running the asset management business. And it was, it was one of those fortuitous timing things, because when I got there in 2000, what I had said is that if you had said, what do you need to do to be a good head of trading for an asset management business, I would have said, you have to be good at the art of trading. You have to be able to manage street relationships, which are kind of interrelated. And you have to manage people. And about two weeks into it, I went to my first board meeting. And Andre Perot was one of the, our, our board members. And he's literally the guy who came up with the idea of uh, short, uh, implementation shortfall. That's good, because I was about <laughs> to go, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> but <laughs> Andre, as you know. But, but yeah, what, yeah. Was, what was crazy yeah. is there I'm sitting in this board meeting feeling really confident about my own abilities. And it was this whole series of subject matter that I was really uncomfortable with. And I got out basically unscathed, but I went back to my desk and I promised myself I would never again go to a meeting where I wasn't the subject matter expert on the scientific piece of this, or the technical piece, which we would later have called market structure. Mm -hmm. And so I walked out and I said, I'm going to do this. And I was in this great spot because I was in Mullen, which is a big account, and I get to really talk to anybody I want to talk to. Buddy Donahue was my general counsel. So Buddy ends up leaving. Oh, right. Yeah. And then eventually wound up at the FCC. Yeah, he ended up running IM, yeah. and then he was the Mary Jo's chief of staff. Right. And so, so together, to ask who the hell wow. Buddy is, too. Wow. Yeah, Tim knows a lot of people. Brendan's background is a little more limited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that 2000, 2000, if, you, if, you're, up, if you're interested in market structure, <laughs> 2000, 2006 is a crazy period of time, right? So you have, you know, 2001, you have decimalization. You have the AMER tri trade guidelines. You have... Uh, ECNs merging, you have exchanges buying ECNs, you have Reg NMS, you had all the stuff. And so clearly I began defensively, like I was never going to be in that spot again. But into it, I got really interested in the market structure stuff, and it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it became like an offensive tool. Like there was so much change going on, if you understood it, you could better orient the way you traded to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it was like totally fascinating for me to become engaged in market structure stuff. And if you had asked me in 2005 what I was going to do, I would have said I would have stayed at Merrill Lynch because my start date would have been 79. I had 25 years in it, and, and Merrill Lynch, Loyalty Service was a big deal. So you're 25 years, you get a plaque, and you have a party. I thought you got a grandfather clock. That's 50. But did you come uh, to my party? You probably came to the party. It was free. Yeah, I don't think I was actually invited. You actually a fucking grandfather mm -hmm. clock. No, at 50. There was actually, like, back in the day, yeah. there was a catalog. Oh, it's that you oh, you're kidding. You know, Father, it was like Wheel of Fortune. Clock. It was like, but I'll take a porcelain time. dog for 100. I'll take... Uh, <laughs> How long for steak knives? Right? Yeah. Well, but yeah, I got them, too. I had a shot at that. And so, like, I would never have left. Like, so I really liked my job. I liked the place I worked. I liked Merrill Lynch. 
uh, my friends worked there. My friends had leadership positions. So what Charm. changed? So they yeah. sold us in uh, 2006. They sold us to BlackRock. Good question. And I had a little bit of identity <laughs> crisis, right? Because here I am, this Merrill Lynch guy who happened to work in asset management, but I like the asset management business. So should I stay at Merrill Lynch or should I go with the asset should management business? Should I stay or should I go now? Mm -hmm. But the, mm -hmm. the cool thing That's was... That's a good line. Yeah, mm -hmm. It should be a song. <laughs> but <laughs> what was interesting was that in addition to getting this knowledge base from market structure, I met a lot of really interesting people. And this one person I had become really good friends with was Duncan Ederauer. Who was I recognize that name, everyone. He was the former CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. But at the time, he's at Goldman, and we had become really good friends. And so I went to him and I said, what do you think I should do? I don't know if like I like this, I don't like that. And he said, um, and I sat down with him, he goes, look, you know, I don't think you should do either of those things. Like, for the last couple of years, you've been really engaged in this business and the market structure stuff, and you're constantly complaining about the way things are. I think you should go do something different and interesting in market structure. Mm -hmm. And I have something for you. Like, we, I just bought this property along with, uh, he said Lebo, but Larry Leibowitz at UBS, and there were, there were four of the guys. I know, I, I, I know that name too. Another Nazi guy. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Probably Goldman. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, UBS. But mm -hmm. he was Arkham. But anyway, these guys had bought this property and he said, look, we bought this property. It's these six guys out of Canada who built exchanges all around the world that differ than anything in the US. It's really interesting. It's, it's going to be in the block space. It's not a, a fully formed idea yet, but we want somebody to run it. We've actually talked about you in the board meetings that you may be the right guy to do this. I think you should be interested in doing this. <clears throat> and so I thought about it and like, that was such a magical time. Like, think about all the change, not just in our industry, but globally during that period of time. There's so much going on that seemed like going to do a startup was probably a good idea. What, like, what year was that again? 2006. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you two things, just for people here who uh, listening that don't understand or know what a block is. Uh, can you explain what a block is? In, in 2006, I wasn't even in the industry. I'm just curious if a block was, was as hard to attain then as it is now. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting you should ask that. So uh, the block stuff goes back to, like, if you go look at history, the uh, biggest percentage of blocks traded on the New York Stock Exchange would have been in 1995. And what's a, what's a block? 10,000 shares or more. So yeah. a single trade of 10,000 shares or more. Okay. Or $200,000 right? right? yeah. Thanks, John. I remember that. You know, Thank you, The regulator. I provide right. some yeah. added value. John can come back next podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so, you, like, what had happened, like, the, the backstory on blocks was that... Um, what I would say is that the rise, the most interesting thing in my career over that span was the rise of the institutional investor, right? So, 79, not a big player, but the mid-80s and the 90s, significantly driving business. In 1995, the New York Stock Exchange was the only source that you really have for that. It was the largest, 56 or 57% of all trades that happened in New York were in a block size, 10,000 shares of really? Yeah. So, it was the peak of it. And actually, it's the same year, it's 95, the same year that the fixed protocol started coming out and technology got better, and by 98, you have reg ATS. But blocks were an important part of for the buy side. What John and I can tell you is that if your manager has wants to do a trade and they want to buy a million shares, <coughs> and they have some edge in that, right? They they think that stock's got there's some short term alpha yeah. in that. The quicker you buy, the better off you are. Yeah. So blocks help you facilitate that. And in pre nineteen ninety five, everything's manual, right? So everything was blocks because literally you were writing reports down by I bought a hundred thousand shares from Merrill Lynch. I Do you think those blocks were principal based or agency based? So is the broker putting people up using their capital, or do you think it was it was you know natural? Liquidity. So I think it was mostly a blue, uh, certainly it's capital, don't you? Well, yeah, I would say it's broker facilitated. So yeah. what would typically happen, like if you go back and say what was like 1994 like, 
and you wanted to buy two million shares of something. Like eight hundred thousand might be nat. The broker, you call the broker, you go say, I want to buy eight hundred thousand shares of uh, IBM. The broker could would go out to a bunch of clients. They try to put together a trade. They may find eight hundred thousand, and they'd fill in on a balance of two hundred mm-hmm. to get the trade done. But what like what happened in in two thousand and one when you went to decimalization, and when commission rates back then listed commissions were. Seven cents, five to seven cents. Let's bring back the past. (laughs) Yeah. By two thousand and three or two thousand and four, those that's like three cents. Mm. So as commit, so people would facilitate block trades. But I know, like (laughs) your business is even better. But people would facilitate blocks because they run a loss ratio versus you. Like they knew that a broker would say, "Okay, I'll fill in that last two hundred thousand. I'm going to lose money, but if you're paying me seven cents a share, and the spread is." A quarter. They knew they could get out of it. And I, knew, I knew I could get out yeah. of it. And once that went away, it, it sort of changed the nature of that business. Do you think that traders back then were... In the olden days. I, in the olden days. I don't want to say sloppier, but, you know, this is... Technology isn't where it is today. Did, did traders have the willingness to sort of show their hand more back then? Here's 100. Here's yep. 200. Yep. And now traders are holding that close to the vest and they're using their machines to, you know, send a hundred but they're, they're controlling yeah. it with slicing and dicing. Do you feel that that may have buoyed up the block figure? So I think the real driver of blocks was the, uh, like, having worked on the floor, was that you had to manually, like, think about this, like, if you wanted to buy a hundred thousand shares, you had to literally write down the report. Prefix, right. so fixed protocol, which is the mm-hmm. electronic transfer of information. Mm-hmm. When you couldn't transfer information electronically, you were doing everything manually. So we you imagine writing down a bunch of hundred lots, yeah. hundred lots. So you wouldn't do <laughs> that, one fifty, right? yeah, one ten, one twenty. Yeah, no way. And, and it was oh, really man. interesting. It was writer's the, cramp. The 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 in uh, I'd say like in the mid nineties, the large block liquidity was better than retail. So if you tried to trade retail, you literally can get a report for five or seven days. So mm. if I wanted to buy a hundred shares of something, I literally couldn't find out about it for five to seven days. Mm. And when you were trading it in big blocks, you were getting your report right away. And so it was. It was a really dramatically different world. Mm. But just to complete, so like, I I took this job because I thought it was really interesting. I thought that this was a space where I, Duncan was right. I complained about a lot, and it was something interesting to do. And everything else had worked out. Like all those ECNs had traded. Like, and and a joke I would always tell people is that, you know, it was I was forty five. I had midlife crisis, and and running a C, being a CEO of a startup was way better than learning to ride a motorcycle. If I had known it in 18 months, Bear Stearns would be out, in two years Lima would be out, there'd be a Harley parked in front of this place right now. Because like, I mean, like, <laughs> like, it was a crazy... It was an interesting time to make that entry, for I'm sure. I'm 45 uh, now. Should I buy a bike? Uh, well, there it is. <laughs> uh, maybe. Or become a bartender. You know, yeah. You'd be really good at bar. You make a lot of tips. You're you charming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. But anyway, so my yeah. background was that I was never... I don't still to this day see myself as an entrepreneur. I see myself as a buy-side guy. Who had the ability to go do something interesting in the block space, mm-hmm. and and then so the, the the connectivity piece of this is that John and I sat across from each other. I leave in September of '06. Uh, the company trades to BlackRock. John stays, and then you would have taken over trading in seven, eight, eight. Yeah. Now it was a much bigger job by then because BlackRock mm-hmm. had multiple desks. Yeah. yeah. But, the core yeah. group of people, core yeah. group of portfolio managers, sure. for sure. sure. So we have this whole connective, like literally the people 
the managers I trade for, right. a lot of those. And John, many of the traders that you yeah. that worked for you worked for me. So <laughs> tell me this, and for fuck's sake, make it quick, Tim. Oh, <laughs> God, <laughs> I'm interested. Well, who's what? full hot air? You or me? I don't know. Both, but that's okay. What what is it that uh, bids does? So what what I thought was interesting yeah. about this space when I took it was that, and it's, this is really interesting because we'll, we'll this will be an interesting pivot for John and I to talk about this, yeah. is that I really took my job because the existing block space when I started was buy side to buy side only two cents a share. And where I sat, there were two things I wanted to do I wanted to be different. One, I wanted to let the sell side in. So the joke I always had was that I didn't see the sell side as an enemy. I saw them as a competitor. And in fact, everyone was a competitor. Yeah. And if they could help me achieve my goals, best execution of my goals, they were fine. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. perfect. And it's, it's not five-year-old soccer. Everybody doesn't get a trophy. There are winners and losers in every trade. And so I started out by saying I wanted to have both the buy and the sell side in, and I wanted to do something commissions. So the buy to sell side should be easy, right? The buy side in the block space is the front end integration into an order management system. But we struggled with the sell side. And the funny story about building businesses is that um, by the end of 07, after like chasing her for seven months, I finally got Mary Beth Shea to come work for me, and John, John knows her. And so she had been to the Boston Stock Exchange. And so the cool part of the, the business was we had these six Canadian guys who built exchanges around the world, never in the US. I had never run a PL or an exchange or anything in like a, any kind of market space. Mary Beth had done that in, in Boston at the Boston Stock Exchange. So we're explaining our business, and this is the buy side workflow. The portfolio manager gives a million shares, and the same for John today and for me today. Portfolio manager gives a million shares. The buy side trader puts, as John alluded to, 50,000 shares out. 950 sits idle. Those idle shares would show up today in bids or Illuminex in John's space. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we can't figure out what to do with the sell side because those guys are coming in, but they're coming in with 100 shares, and the buy side guys want to buy 50,000 or 100,000. Mm -hmm. And she looked at us like, like she does today, like we're morons, and she goes, well, isn't that exactly the same thing happens? You give an order to a broker, the broker puts 100,000 shares into an algo, but 95 sits in the engine and five goes to the street. Mm -hmm. And we kind of looked at each other and we said, oh my God, she's right. And we started doing automated conditionals. Yeah. So in the end of 07, beginning of 08, we started doing these automated conditionals, which really changed our business because we were able to get the sell side and the buy side in the same pool. So by doing that with the 95% that stays in the buy side, Blotter as well as the sell side, they'd have a chance to match up. Yeah, and size okay. because they both yeah. want to trade. So both orders would trade size if they can. So they wouldn't expose them to the street, but they could in, match in up. our yeah. pool or John's pool. Yeah. Same thing. And then the thing on the thing that was different too for us on the uh, where John and I that we worked for this guy Bob Dahl, who was both of our bosses at, at the same at different times. But so Bob was very content heavy. So what Bob would tell you is that what's really important to performance is to be able to get good ideas. So we both managed very strict research lists. And so we would pay out to be aligned, like if Broker A was giving us the best content, Broker A should be the highest paid. And so the ability to manage your research was really important and critical to the success of an asset manager. And so when I got there, I was like, well, an ETS should just be a venue. Like I know we're broker dealers, but like the problem here is that we're disintermediating the broker from the sell side. So we became sponsored access, which meant that the only subscribers I had in bids were broker dealers. And John, who was at, at BlackRock at the time, could pick a broker, pay the broker whatever he chose, and trade in our system. So he could actually pay the brokers for the goods and services they gave him. Yep. And I was a half a penny, and the whole world was in this weird way, exactly two cents. And so we broke, we put, we were the first block venue to put pricing pressure on that space. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Luminex. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah. Okay. John Clark, mm -hmm. former head of trading at BlackRock. 
Uh, America's, but yes. America's? Yeah. Mm-hmm. God bless. Yeah, I was impressed That's by you. God bless. Yeah. Well, God, God, God bless. <laughs> not pretty fucking impressive. So, yeah. so, why are you cursing? I'm sorry. I'm really uncalled for. Yeah. It's the beer. It's the beer. Liquidity <laughs> makes me do it. Liquidity <laughs> makes me curse. What is Luminex? Yep. Where did it come from? What do you do there? So, um, I'm the CEO of Luminex. We are a uh, buy side owned and operated, we like to call it. Um, trading venue uh, that is focused solely on block trading. Uh, the only participants today that can gain access to the, this liquidity pool is our buy side shops. And it's 100% institutional. Most of our clients have about a billion dollars or more in AUM. Uh, minimum trade size is 5,000 shares. Uh, today our average trade size is about 35K. Our average block size is between 50 and 60K. Wow. So, you know, we're a one trick pony. We just want to trade blocks. Uh, so those large orders that, you know, back in the day, you're sitting at your screen and bam, you know, two million shares shows yeah. up. You're like, oh, okay, this is all right. You know, deep breaths. Because two million shares may be 15 days worth of volume. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when you know, send me an order and you're like, what yeah, are we doing with that? You take the deep <coughs> breath. You kind of, mm-hmm. all right, let's just uh, we'll so do, we can a little, do here. Let's just do a little work here. You know, yeah. what, mm-hmm. what, what are the uh, characteristics? You know, what's the volume? What's the volatility on this name? What's it been doing? What's in the news? Is our, our earnings coming on out of, after the bell? Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of do so that work. gives you that as a trader, uh, is there expectation that you should just be able to buy it at the price that's printing yeah. right uh, now? Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, they're, they're filled. In their mind, <laughs> yeah. they sent it, I passed it last to you. trade. Yeah. Okay, they, inside, he's right. In really? their brain, they think they're filled. Now, uh, you know, I think some are obviously a little bit more, more realistic, aware yeah. and realistic. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but I... The mark. I the mark is the like when they send the it current to you, market is that's a mark. Yeah, like, yeah. and then it's econometric yeah. because that's when they want to trade, right? Yeah, oh my gosh! I used to work for a guy, and it, this is in the futures market. But he would send me an order. He'd yell at me, JC. You know, he'd send me uh, five hundred cocoa to buy, and the open interest in the cocoa was you know a hundred, and he'd say <laughs> buy five hundred and. The price would move, you know, a couple ticks. Yeah. Be like, am I filled? I say, no, I got you twenty-five contracts. He'd say, you know what? Buy a thousand. That's, you know, some of folks have that mentality that if I can't get in, I want more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Equity PMs yeah. have a little bit of philosophy of like, yeah, I'll give you a dime or a nickel, but there is this expectation that you're going to be able to move stock. And to be fair, there's a lot of places to go looking, right? Yeah. So you can, you know, hey, you know, you're hitting all your Bloomberg screens. You're you're doing rank go. You're doing, you know, whatever you can. Do to find who's in the name, but you know, Tim's pool, our pool, it's just a way to kind of so let's Lum- just see if there's anything natural. Luminex started when on this timeline? So we're in 2015, uh-huh. but it's sort of born from a dark time, and I know IX was sort of born from a, a similar yeah, era, yeah, right, a similar right, era. Right. Phoenix where, from the flames, yeah, yeah. I mean, the ATSs were kind of tripping on themselves, there's some disclosure issues, there's you know, yeah, a lot of transparency there issues. There were a lot of difficult stories out there, and, you know, yeah. pipeline had blown up, it was kind of nasty. And uh, and this was sort of one of those, you know, what, why don't we just kind of. You know, we all want to just trade, right? Yeah. And it's almost one of those little conversations that you have sidebar at a, at a broker event. Like, why don't we just trade with each other? And they mm-hmm. said, well, you can't just trade with each other. Yeah. You need an intermediary. And they're like, well, right. let's just create one. Yeah. And that's kind of how it yeah. sort of was born. Well, what's interesting to me is you guys obviously have been friends for a long time. You have a great relationship. Oh, Do you yeah. view each other as competitors in any way? Friends. So the funniest story, like, we, so we live two towns away from each other. And like, <laughs> I guess two years ago, 
we're in like the town between us and we run into each other with our wives and like, mm -hmm. like we're like trying to pretend we don't know each other <laughs> like but i think we share a common view right so i think what we understand is that um that there are lots if you're on, having lived that job so here's what i'd say for sure live sat on the buy side you need a lot of tools mm -hmm. because there's a lot of stuff going on and it's not our job to determine what you do it's our job john and my job to give you the tools to do whatever you have to do and you should choose whether you want to trade my pool that's both buy and sell side automated manual mm -hmm. or john's pool which is this manual to manual buy side only like mm -hmm. our jobs are provide you with distinct different choices because what I'm sure it's annoyed you too is that people would come down brokers so like particularly in that 2000 2006 and they'd say well for Beck's execution you should be really trading with me and you're like really like this is literally all I do like I think about this all the time right so the buy side job is a hard it's my favorite job I ever had I love my company like I'm yep. sure you feel the same way I love yep. it but that job is so cool I mean the 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 compliments and uh, uh, but it's a cool job. The kindness you receive from the other side. <laughs> oh, so yes. think about the our ecosystem. Yeah. The only one with a fiduciary obligation in our ecosystem is the buy side trader. So mm -hmm. I'm respectful mm -hmm. of the of everybody when I meet them and they're a buy side trader. They have the literally highest level of fiduciary, and it's a prudent man standard. Like it's a high standard yeah, for sure. And so it's kind of goofy. Like so, but when I took this job, the one thing I told everybody is we never tell people what to do. We listen to them, and we try to create the best possible structure we can for them. But it's only like it's only like if, if you're a asset manager that thinks content's really really important, you should be able to figure out how to manage those relationships. Mm -hmm. If you're an asset manager that's quantitative, you shouldn't have to. I should sit there and give you the tools to do both, right? Well, yeah, you, I mean, you've done really well. Obviously, it's a very competitive space to have um, sort of both of you um, survived and you're established and you're continuing to provide real value. Do you have any perspective on uh, other, I mean, ATSs are actually seem to be consolidating to a certain yeah. extent. Is that going to continue? I think the hurdles associated with running an ATS are high enough now as it relates to the risk and, and the technology. Uh, ATSN for sure, right? Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you can't just kind of open one here, open one there, fly by night. I mean, it, the threshold is much more high exposure. enough now yeah. that I think firms are thinking twice. And even those who have three under, you know, one roof mm -hmm. are sort of saying, yeah, yeah. why don't we consolidate these things? Yeah. So I, I think it, it has consolidated, certainly. Uh, I still think there could be a little bit more in that front, for sure. It, mm -hmm. it, it's not quite like the ECN story. So the ECNs are like eight of them in 97. And they all consolidate by 05 or 06, right? Like, the, like I don't think you can't have that because the ATSN totally raised the level of uh, compliance and expense in running an ATS. And so I think that that's yet to play out. But I do, I'm agreeing with John for sure. But like, I think our models are different. So here's what I'd say is that if you can walk into a client, John and I can walk in together if we wanted to, and John could describe what he does and I describe what I, what I do, it's different. Yeah. And so. I stand by my, like, if you're, if John, if you're running a fund and if you're the head of trading, you can use us differently for different reasons, mm -hmm. and you should be able to do that. Yeah. The <laughs> irony is, like, on the other side of the equation, then you've got exchanges seemingly proliferating, which seems to make no sense as far as I can tell. I mean, but it's you know. the, the order protection rule. Like, so we yeah. have not a protected quote. So yeah. if you're a protected quote, in some bizarre way, it makes sense to have more tokens mm -hmm. because... It's a protect like right. you have an ability to have a protected. Quote. So do you think that's screwed up? Um, oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. So like I think about like did you, you both you both agree on, on that? Yeah. I don't have as strong as opinion as Tim yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. So so what I here's what I would tell you is that um, 
Did, have you guys read Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat? It was like 2005-ish? I'm sure I must have. I've thought, read it in know. three or four languages. <laughs> yeah. So what he talks about, though, is how uh, technology flattened, uh, made the world more competitive, flattened mm -hmm. out different mm -hmm. uh, silos. And so what I always think about in our space, having like literally done this for 40 years, is the role of the buy side trader, the role of the exchange, and the role of the sell side has collapsed over time. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of creates uh, weird dynamics. So I think the entire market structure of the U.S. has to deal with it in some way because it's 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 like it's talking about your stuff, the guys you do your D limit and your D and your mm -hmm. what do you call the midpoint one, the D D peg D peg D peg. So what's interesting, if you had asked me in 2005, should an exchange do that? I would have said absolutely no way. That's mm. a broker dealer responsibility. Mm -hmm. If you asked me in 2010, I might have said, huh. I don't know. I don't think so. I'd say no. Yeah, sure. Why not? We, we got Tim on the record. <laughs> but here, here's what's wrong, though. Is that I think the exchange, I think the, the regulation is trapped in the 34 Act. Like, the world's different than 34. Yeah. The world is flat. Like, the difference between a broker and exchange and a buy-side guy has collapsed completely. Mm. And I stand by what Dan Gallagher would say. You know who Dan Gallagher is? I'm sorry. I know who Dan Gallagher is. Irish name. And a double Jesuit guy, by the way. So he's a Jesuit high school, Jesuit college mm -hmm. guy. Wait, here, here's a hot take for you. Do you know Mahoney in Ireland is pronounced Mahoney? I know, for good reason. Yeah, so uh, you should change your name and pronounce it. Mahoney. That's my mother. My mother's so name just, is Mahoney. Your mother's name is... You can't cut me off until my mother. You never have an Irish guy in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcast just got hot. So anyway, anyway. Dan Geller's always said, and I think it's true, is that we need a holistic review. And so you can, it's like, I don't know, is Redfern download this? Can you tell who downloads it? Like, if we're saying this, you can tell, like, Brett's sitting there going, I hate, like, he's probably actually, actually cursing me out loud. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is, is I hate that... Tim Manny. 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 But so the problem is, is that um, the role of the exchange is different than it used to be. Mm -hmm. And if you still try to put it in a 34 context, the world has changed. And I understand that the holistic review is dangerous, like, so it's, it's got a lot of perils in it. But I'm going to quote John F. Kennedy, who's another good Irish guy. I feel like that, right? I can probably quote myself. But we, you know, it's like when he does that moon, I love this thing about the moon. He goes, we go to the moon and do other things, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Honestly, I stand by this, like, as long as we're stuck in a, in a 1934, 1975 construct, like, it's just suboptimal. The buy-side role, the buy-side trader's role went from being a clerk, right? Literally, portfolio manager telling you, I want to buy a million shares, go to Goldman, to now managing the best execution process and having 30 tools, 25, 30 mm -hmm. different options in front yeah, of you. Sure. Mm. And so, but I think you guys, the exchange is like stuck in this rut where there's so much more you could do to make the markets better. And uh, I think it's on, it's, on, it's on the SEC to be able to give you the ability to do it. Right. So look, it's a great point because I think now there's this misnomer, and I've said this before on this podcast, that people think that buy side are like clerks now because they have so all not. these electronic yeah. tools and they just take the order from the PM, plunk it in, and it all works like fucking magic. And I think, to your point, Tim, it's completely the opposite where the buy sides now have to progressively become more detectives than they've ever done before. It is the best, is the most important job in the in the, in the ecosystem. Is the buy side trader job, and it's the only and it's uh, fittingly because it's the only one who has a like a, the fiduciary obligation. Right. And so, I think we all, both you and John and I, should be able to provide them the right tool. So what I would tell you is, I'm incredibly respectful 
of the head of trading job because yeah. the level of scrutiny and the level of responsibility and the level of legal responsibility right. is so awesome. And the number of the inputs you have yeah, to Yeah, and the rest of us, like, we have to be really respectful of that. And I, I certainly, having John and I have been in that spot, I think we both are. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely gives you a good perspective having yeah. sat in that seat and been in that spot. But the tools have only gotten better since, yeah. you know, you yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, though, like, as, like, founders like yourself and, I, you know, Corny as it sounds, when you come in here every it's day, unbelievable, like, I come right? in early. I do see our logo that right. we picked the color, the right. shape, yeah. the office. It's it's <clears throat> it's immense pride that you're doing something right. Um, I'm gonna start crying. That's lovely. It's very eloquent. Because yeah. like there it, is times, it, it is incredible. It, yeah. There are times it didn't work. Like if you would ask me, and like so think about this. So we're 18 months in. Bear Stearns goes out. Lehman goes out within two years. That 2010, 2011 period was really bad. Like, the market's really bad. And there were definitely, like, there are times, we, like, when I was worried we'd be able to have our Christmas party, we'd still be in business. And uh, to sit there now and look and have a successful business now, it's crazy. But all that being said, I don't want to ever diminish how interesting that other job was. Because yeah. that 2000, 2006 range, the amount of the pace of change in our industry was unbelievable. Every day there was some announcement, like Arc New York, uh, you know, so it was a Ready and Arc emerge. New York merged with Arc in the Pacific. Right. New York and Euronex merged. Like you couldn't go a year where the words like the, the Nasdaq became an exchange. Like it was so and all, and all the various bank and broker oh, consolidations, yeah. and mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. just wild decimalization. Decimalization was the most unbelievable. Like. For Nasdaq, viewers, that was what like viewers at home, 2001. Yeah. Viewers at home, like our listeners at home, listeners, yeah, listeners at home. Mm -hmm. So there were distinct models between New York and Nasdaq, right? The New York was a listed market, agency market, where it displayed bids and offers, and it was you could actually put your order on the book. Nasdaq was a dealer market, right? When it went to decimals, nobody knew you couldn't make money in a penny. And the dealer market collapsed in a month. I'm not kidding. Like people buy, it went to agency with commissions explicit. So there were no commissions. So if you trade Nasdaq in in 2000, it was free. It was a net. It was a net market, right? Yeah, yeah, free. <laughs> free. It was a net market. So free is always. But it was a yeah. quarter quarter spread, by the way. Yeah. Net market not, quarter spread. Not so free. But it literally right. disappeared <laughs> overnight. The right. pace of change. So I know you guys were. Uh, Ronan was a star in a Michael Lewis book. I still am a star. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah he's but a star. Certainly, like, before he wrote the the the, uh, the Ronan Ryan story, mm -hmm. he wrote called the, the the new new thing. Oh yeah, yeah. In '99, I love that book. Who's oh. your favorite character in a Michael Lewis book? <laughs> Ronan Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, pale, pasty Irish it's, guy it's, with the slanty mm -hmm. shoulders who mm -hmm. survived one famine. Mm -hmm. A wily mongoose of a guy. I <laughs> <laughs> was expecting the next. So that's how, when Ronan and I met, that's like the kind of funny thing is that yep. I, I will be honest is that I was skeptical that Michael Lewis had wrote the book. I thought Ronan had. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met him and he read that quote. And it was like the funniest quote. Like, And then I made you do it at STA too. Yeah, he yeah. did. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so Tim, Tim, Tim called me out at STA this year because when we first met, we were doing a broker dinner, a broker yeah. buy side dinner. Up in Boston, and I, I kind of it was around the time that the book came out. And I said, "Listen, like if if you think I wrote the book, you're probably sadly mistaken." And if you go, he to said something more colorful. One or the other. I read the first line in chapter three on Ronan's problem, and uh, 
Tim Mahoney became like my best buddy since then. We're losing our audience. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a wrap on today's uh, podcast. I'd say we've gone about as far as we can go with this one. Thank you very much, Tim and John. You've been great, great guests. And John Thank Ramsey. you for putting up with Ronan. And thank you, John Ramsey. God bless you all until we meet again. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.